Good afternoon, New Hope. Today's scripture reading comes from Mark 7, 24 to 30. Please stand if you are able. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> thank you, Julia, for reading God's word to us. And thank you all for gathering. It's great to see you all. Welcome once again in the name of the Lord. You're welcome into this place. Did you happen to notice what Julia just read? Were you listening? Did you hear what she read? Did you hear the part about what Jesus said to that woman? The part where he called her a dog? Or did he? Maybe he didn't. Didn't that, did it, did it catch you off guard? Did it sound out of character to hear Jesus speaking to a person in that way? I mean, if you've been around here for a while, as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, you might be used to hearing Jesus insult religious leaders, religious hypocrites, I should say, and judgmental Pharisees. Oh, he insults them, but a, a desperate mother? Why would he speak to her in such a way? It's kind of shocking. In fact, this whole scene, I think you'll find, is shocking. It's remarkable, really, but not in the way we might think. Not in the way we might think. Some have tried to make excuses for Jesus or try to sanitize what he said here, but we don't need to make excuses for him. Instead, what we need to do is understand him, like this woman did. She understood him. She got it. And if we get it, then we'll learn to approach God like she did, to get everything that we desperately need. So the text says that Jesus got up and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. That's, uh, that's in, we'll look at that on the map here. That's, it's up there in the, it's in what's today modern day Lebanon, just south of Beirut. Jesus left Israel and headed north, probably because he wanted some peace and quiet and safety as well. You know, if you remember, powerful people were plotting to kill him, actively finding a way to put an end to him. And so Jesus went somewhere that the Jewish crowds were unlikely to follow him and where the Jewish authorities were also unlikely to follow him. But someone found him anyway. In fact, she found out right away where he was staying and, and she walked in uninvited. She fell at his feet and begged. The language actually says she kept asking and kept asking him to cast out an unclean spirit that was tormenting her little daughter. Let's look at this woman and see what the text tells us about her. In verse 26, it says that she was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. That's important. 
Because it means that this woman had none of the cultural qualifications required, necessary to make demands of a rabbi like Jesus. She was not Jewish or a man or a worshiper of the God of Israel, Yahweh. So from the perspective of Jewish people, Jewish people of that time, she was, she was an unclean woman from an unclean country with an unclean child who had an unclean spirit. There were so many reasons for her not to walk into that room and approach Jesus, but she walks in anyway. And she won't stop asking for what the child needs. She won't stop persisting. Doesn't that tell you something about her? Don't you get a sense of the character of this woman just from this brief description? Let's look at Jesus in this scene. Again, it's a scene where he might seem a little uncharacteristic. He, he might, might feel like he's coming off a little harsh here. Look at verse 27. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Hmm. Now, in Jesus' context, dogs were not exactly beloved like they are today. It wasn't such a pet-friendly or dog-friendly culture as the one that we live in. Dogs typically were scavengers. They, they were wild. They were filthy. They roamed the streets. Now, some people did keep dogs as pets, as family pets in the home. But even, even in that case, the, the, the dogs weren't necessarily seen as like part of the family, right? The way some of you might see your pets. No one called their dogs their fur babies back then. In fact, if you were to call someone a dog, it was generally bad. Jews called Gentiles dogs. The Romans called Jews dogs. No one was saying, hey, dog, like a, like a friendly thing. No one was like, my dog, back then. I realize people probably aren't saying that in 2024 either, except for me, maybe. But, but and this is what's worth noting, the word that Jesus uses isn't just dog. It's a, it's a diminutive form, which means it, it actually means small dog, something like a doggy. It's the kind of word that would be used for a house dog or a puppy. But, but don't get it twisted. That doesn't mean that this was... <laughs> that this is, this is, these are warm, fuzzy words. It's not. It's still, it's still odd at best and offensive at worst. If someone called you the diminutive form of dog, someone calls you a doggy or a puppy, it still wouldn't have been positive. So the question is, was Jesus, what was Jesus doing here? Was he, is this, do we sense some racism here? Is Jesus being racist? or misogynist towards this woman and her daughter? In other words, and here's a question we have to ask, was Jesus sinning? And the reason we need to ask is because, frankly, the whole message of the Bible depends on this. If he was, then we should pack up this service because the fact is, the fact is that if he sinned, then he is no savior because the savior must be sinless. It's what made him, if you remember last week, we looked at the high priest and the work that the high priest would do in ancient Israel when he would go into the holiest of holies in the temple and 
offer sacrifice, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the other priests, and then for the sins of the people. This is what makes Jesus a different kind of high priest. It's what made him different from every other high priest that came before him to offer sacrifices because he had no sins to atone for in himself. He only atoned for the sins of the people. Otherwise, he could not be the spotless lamb. He couldn't die for our forgiveness. You see, if he sinned, then he is no savior. For what it's worth, this woman understood what Jesus meant. We might feel so culturally distant from it. We we weren't there to see the look on his face or to hear the tone of his voice or to understand the the dynamics of the relationship. We weren't there, but but she was, and she, she got it. She got it. And we need to try to understand it too. You see, what Jesus was saying was not degrading her or her daughter. It it, it was, uh, yes, offensive. No doubt, offensive. But he was not degrading her. Nor was he saying that they were no better than animals. You see, the point of what Jesus was saying, what it really had everything to do with was his mission. His kingdom, his plans and purposes as the Messiah. You see, it'll become clear in a second, what he was saying to her had everything to do with order. What does he say? Let the children eat first. First is a key word. He's saying you can't take the kids' food and give it to the dogs until the kids have eaten first. It's only right. You see, it's a metaphor he's drawing. And in this metaphor, the kids here, the children, are specifically the children of Israel. The children of Israel. We might have to notice this. As you go through the Gospel of Mark, you realize that Jesus seldom left Jewish territory. Where was he usually teaching? He went to the synagogues to teach Jewish people in the synagogues. He ministered almost exclusively within the borders of Israel. And what he was doing over the course of his ministry is he was telling and showing the Jewish people that he was their Messiah, that that he was fulfilling their prophecies, that he he was showing signs to display the fact that their anointed Savior had come. And he did this for the course of of, of his ministry, and then he died, and then he rose again. And and what did he say when he rose again? After spending all those years ministering within Israel to predominantly, almost exclusively Jewish people, what does he say when he rises from the grave and he meets his and he meets his disciples? He says, "Now, now that I have risen from the grave, now, what? Go therefore. All authority has been given to me. All authority on earth and in heaven has been given to me. Now, go, go, and make disciples of all the nations." Now is the time for you to go to all the nations, to all the Gentiles. And he says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm going with you. I'm leaving the small area where I've been working all these years. Now I'm coming with you. By my spirit, I will be with you as you take the message of the kingdom, the message of the gospel to all the nations. You see, it was a question of order. To the children of Israel first, and then to all the nations. All the nations. 
And the rest of the New Testament tells that story. In fact, the rest of church history is a record of that really happening. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, 16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the news about Jesus. The good, history-altering, earth-shattering news about Jesus. I'm not ashamed of this gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. It's salvation for everyone, to the Jew first, and then also to the Gentiles. And so Jesus, in a sense, is telling this woman, this desperate mom, it's not your time yet. Now is not time for you. I didn't come here to tire and side on, to, to heal and to save. I came here to tire and side on, to get away, find some peace and quiet. It's not your time yet. Now, now is the age of the time for me to address the needs of the children of Israel, to feed them, to minister to them. Your time hasn't come yet. You see, it's a metaphor using this, this idea of dogs and children. And she gets it. And you know how we know she gets it? Because look at what she says in verse 28. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. The first words out of her mouth are not, what, who, do, who are you? What? Who do you think? You're? No, she says, yes, Lord. Yet, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. You see, what she's saying here is remarkable. Remarkable. Remember, the word here, again, it's small dogs, right? So these are they're small dogs. It's still, you know, it's, an insult, it's insulting to be called a dog, certainly. But these are small dogs that, that, are, that would be under the table in a, in a, in a home. These aren't the wild, scavenging dogs that, that roam the streets. And that really matters for this metaphor, if we're really going to get the picture. Some have said this is a kind of parable that Jesus is telling here, in fact. Because parables, the word for parable is very, it's the same as the word for a metaphor. See, if you, if you had a house dog, you could feed them after the, the humans ate from the table. Now, I know some of you as dog owners, I don't know if you feed uh, your dogs human food or if that's wrong to do. I don't know what that does to a dog. If it's, but in the culture, it was okay. Give them scraps. As long as the kids ate first, that's only right. It's normal. Or if, or if food were to fall to the ground, five second rule, you pick it up and eat it, right? But if it's over five seconds, then the dogs get it. Then the dogs get it. That was normal too. Now again, I'm not a dog owner, but maybe you have some similar rules in your own home if you own dogs. You see, the, the, the picture that Jesus is painting here, this kind of parable, the, 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 the woman, she, the Syrophoenician woman saw it clearly, and the reason we know she saw it clearly is because she, she immediately inserts herself right into it. She says, yes, Lord, I agree. I agree with what you're saying. It's only right for the children to eat first, but, but, but. Don't the dogs get to eat what falls on the ground? Don't the dogs get to get some crumbs? Incidentally, just to say this in passing, you may know that there are other times when Jesus has some words that are um, harsh words for people like the religious hypocrites, the, the, the Pharisees and scribes. There's one point where he calls them vipers and serpents. Very direct. 
And in that metaphor, viper, and so it's very clear what he means. He's saying to them, you guys are like vipers. You're like serpents. You're dangerous. You're, you're, you're um, uh, uh, slithery and, and awful. Um, he calls them at one time uh, whitewashed tombs. And then he explains the metaphor. He says, on the outside, you guys look clean, but on the inside, you're full of death and wickedness. Right, so he uses metaphors like that to describe, but when he, when he calls her a dog, he's not saying, you're like a dog in the sense that, no, he's saying in the same way that the Pharisees are like vipers or like whitewashed tombs. He's saying, in, in this metaphor, you're like a dog in, the, in this sense, in the sense that the children of Israel have to eat first. And she accepts that. And she says, yes, Lord, I'll, I'll, I'll play that role in this metaphor, but don't, don't, don't even the dogs get some crumbs. It's as if she's saying, yes, yes, Lord, I know that you've come for the Jews. You're the Hebrew Messiah, promised by, in the Hebrew scriptures, by the Hebrew prophets. You owe me nothing, but even dogs get crumbs. So how about me? How about my daughter? How about my little daughter? It's like she's saying, I've heard what you can do. I've heard what you can do. I'll, I'll, take, I'll take crumbs. The late R.C. Sproul described this woman's response in a, in a way that's pretty compelling. He says, he says her, her response was, yes, Lord, I understand. I have no prior claim to your mercy. I am not numbered among the children. I can't jump up on the table and feast upon the food that you set before your children. I don't want that. I'm satisfied, Lord, with the crumbs. Heal my little daughter. Just heal my daughter, please. I know she's not in your family. I know she's not numbered among the children. We're, we're like dogs who wait for the crumbs, but, but that's all I'm asking for. End quote. You know, when you first see this, I wonder if you find her response surprising or not surprising. Because in one sense, it's not that surprising. I mean, she was desperate, right? Her little girl was being tormented by, by demons. And she's a mom. Parents here, moms and dads, what, what do you do if your child is in pain or in danger? What lengths would you go to to get them help? Would you take no for an answer? Can't you parents, can't you relate to this woman? She's not taking no for an answer. She sees her child is in pain, and she wants to put an end to it. But, but really, she even takes it a step further. She takes it to a whole other level. Think about it this way. Would you take it seriously if you thought that your child was being deprived of something unjustly? Your child's being treated unfairly. Something's being held back from them that they deserved. And you, how do you feel when your kids get treated unfairly by someone else? I'll give you a silly example. Let's say your child receives a grade that you thought was lower than they deserved. Would you appeal to their teacher? If necessary, would you appeal to administration? Move up the ladder? More complaints until finally that grade gets changed 
If you really thought they deserved it, wouldn't you go to bat for your kid? I've heard that hell hath no fury like a Westchester parent. That's what I've heard. (laughs) Why? Because it's only right. As far as you can see, my child deserves unbiased treatment. And I I deserve unbiased treatment. I'm a resident and a taxpayer. You see, as as 21st century Westerners, we hold our rights very tightly, don't we? We know our rights and we will cling to them. You might even say we're entitled. We'll argue for our perceived entitlements. We'll even fight for our perceived entitlements. But that's not what this woman is doing, you see. She doesn't stand on her rights at all. She doesn't stand on her rights. Look what she says. She says, yes, Lord, I get it. I get it. I'm not entitled to anything from you, and neither is my little girl. But you, you, you said first. You said first. You said let the children eat first, and I think there's enough for me. I think there's enough for my little daughter. In fact, I know there is. And so I'll take it now. Not because I'm entitled, not because I deserve it or because you owe me anything, not because I am who I am, but because you are who you are. You see, she's not arguing on the basis of her own worthiness. She's arguing on the basis of his willingness. I wonder, I wonder if this woman had heard the news surrounding Jesus. Maybe she had heard about that other woman who had been bleeding for over a decade, was considered an outcast and, 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 and unclean by her, her society. And all that woman needed was a touch. All she needed to do was touch Jesus' robe, and she was healed, and her life was changed forever. I wonder if this woman had heard about how Jesus had fed thousands and thousands of people, and, 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 and there were leftovers. The crumbs, <laughs> the crumbs were enough to fill many baskets that day. So she's saying, I've heard about the abundance of power and compassion in this man, that someone just touched him in a crowd and their life was changed. He fed thousands and there was enough crumbs left over to feed a family. I will come to him on the basis of that. She's like Jacob, who wrestled with God and said, I won't let you go until you bless me. And why did Jesse, why did Jacob say that? He didn't say it because, because I deserve a blessing. And he said, I won't let you go because I know you bless people. I know you give out blessings. She's like David who cried out again and again and again, would cry out, save me, Lord, for the sake of your steadfast love. Save me, not because of who I am or what I've done, but because of who you are. I know you, Lord, your love is steadfast. So I stand on that and I ask for rescue. But this woman, I would argue, she's even more remarkable than Jacob was or than David was because she had less info to go on and less of a heritage to, 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 to lean on. She knew less about this Savior. She knew less about the God of Israel than they did. She's an outsider. But somehow, somehow she knew that Jesus wasn't stingy. She knew that Jesus wasn't limited. She must have known something about his compassion and his power. And on that basis, she persisted and she kept asking. Isn't it remarkable? Somehow, this woman, she understood a little bit something about how the gospel works. (laughs) Some have said that she's the first person in the gospel mark to actually get the gospel. (laughs) 
to really, to really understand it at some level. Here's this woman, Syrophoenician by birth. She lived in a place that was dominated by paganism and idolatry. Going back to the Old Testament, her region was, was known for its paganism and its idolatry. And yet she understood how to approach the Lord. She understood how to approach the Lord better than the Pharisees and the scribes who we saw last week. Remember, they would come to him. They would come to God standing on their traditions, standing on the fact that they had cleansed themselves, they had kept the law, they had done the right thing. Not her. She realized that's not the way one approaches the Lord. You don't approach on the basis of your own goodness, but his goodness. You don't approach on the basis of your own worthiness, but on the basis of his willingness. When, um, when we think we're not being treated the way we deserve, don't we get outraged sometimes? And, and sometimes in the face of even a small injustice, we might say, who do you think you are to treat me that way? But that's not what she says. She says, oh, I know who you are. And that's why I've come. She doesn't get outraged and say, who do you think you're talking to calling me a dog? No, no, no. She says, I know who I'm talking to. You're the Lord, the son of David. And you've got plenty of compassion and plenty of power. So, so I'll keep coming and I'll keep asking because of who you are. That's why I said this, this scene shows us how we can approach God, how we must approach God. This woman teaches us. She approached boldly, persistently, and humbly, not standing on her own merit, her own goodness, but on his. And look at how Jesus responded. Verse 29. And he said to her, for this statement... You may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she, and she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Compassion and power. These aren't crumbs, right? This isn't crumbs. This is abundant healing, liberation, freedom for this little girl. And he tells her mother, it's all okay now. And her life was changed forever. Yeah, that's more than crumbs. She was satisfied. She was satisfied, just like the disciples and the crowds in the previous account. They come to Jesus hungry and they were satisfied. New Hope, we can approach Jesus this way. We need to approach Jesus this way. Fact is, we know more than she did. We have more info to go on than she does. More evidence for the compassion and power of Jesus. We have more to stand on than she did. We have more than just rumors about a bleeding woman who was healed or reports that thousands of people got fed. We have more than just reports of demons being cast out. We, we know about the cross. You know, not too long after this very encounter, Jesus would get up from a table where he was eating with his disciples and, and he would leave and, and a sequence of events would unfold on that evening. 
And it would all lead up to him hanging, beaten and naked on a, on a cross, put to complete shame. You know, the, the crucifixion was the ultimate way for that society to say, you have no place among us. You're not just deserving of death. You have no place at our table. Jesus would be treated worse than an animal, worse than a dog. In fact, it's believed and reported by historians that often when people were crucified in Rome, in the Roman Empire, they would be crucified not far off the ground, and it was low enough that stray dogs could come and and jump up and and eat the bodies of the dead crucified victims. He was treated like a dog. The dogs didn't eat Jesus. Jesus was taken down from that cross and he was put in a tomb and he rose again. But in that moment on that cross, you know, Psalm 22 is a prophecy that points ahead to the crucifixion of Jesus. And in Psalm 22, the, 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 the psalmist says, I'm surrounded by vicious beasts. That was the experience of this man. Willingly. Why? It was all for our sins. It was all for our sin. It was all deserved by us. Our iniquities were laid on him. All deserved by us. We wonder if Jesus is doing something wrong here when he speaks to this woman in the way he did. No, no, no. It was for all of our degrading words that he died. For all of our pride and our entitlement. The way we look down on others and think too much of ourselves. He died for all of that and more. You see, the cross itself, it shows us our profound unworthiness and his profound willingness. It shows us our profound unworthiness and and our profound worth. At the same time, it's ironic. When we look at the cross, we see, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve what he did for me. Neither do you. But the cross also reveals our profound worth in his eyes. He was willing to die to have you. In fact, if you want to know how Jesus viewed that woman that he was speaking to that day and how Jesus viewed that little Syrophoenician girl at home with a demon in her, you want to know how he felt about them? Look at the cross. Look at the cross to see what he did for them and for us. And when we see that, really see it, we will begin to approach God with the same kind of desperate confidence that she showed. She got a place at the table. And you, you've got one too, if you'll come on the basis of who he is and what he has done for you. That's what gets us a place at the table. Not to eat crumbs and scraps, but to receive all the good that Jesus has prepared for you. Eternal life, acceptance, final healing and satisfaction in him. What we see here as Jesus goes into Tyre and Sidon and he has mercy on this woman, it's kind of a, it's kind of a trailer. Because remember, he said, it's not your time yet, but then he still, he still rescued her and her family. 
It's not time yet, but I'll do it anyway. It's a trailer, a trailer of coming attractions. You see, Jesus knew that eventually, one day, his table would be crowded with Gentiles like her and like many of us. He knew that one day the world would be filled with believers, men and women and children from every language, every tribe, every nation, who've all experienced the limitless compassion and power of Jesus, who came to him and found mercy. I'm going to end with just a little bit of application here. Maybe it's obvious, but I'll say it anyway. Don't, don't ever come to God entitled. But also, also, don't let your unworthiness keep you away either. The late, great Tim Keller put it something like this. He said, don't insult God by assuming you deserve anything from him. But don't also insult him by assuming he won't give you all you need. It's true, he owes you nothing. You've got nothing to show for yourself. But he is willing. He is willing. Imagine with me a, a, a young man, 17 years old, gets a, gets a speeding ticket. This young man knows his dad is a generous guy, and his dad is, uh, has money, loves him. So this young man goes home with a ticket, and he drops it in front of his dad and said, pay this, will you? And dad says, what? He says, well, pay it. And dad says, what, what? what are you talking about? And he says, well, you know, it is your car after all. And uh, I just put gas in it a couple of weeks ago, I think. And you taught me to drive anyway. So I think you should pay this ticket. <clears throat> Plus, you got money, not me. I'm broke. What would you say about that young man? You might say he's entitled. You might have some other words to describe him. But let's picture a different scenario. Maybe that, that young man, he gets that speeding ticket. He's got the same generous, wealthy father, loving father. But this young man, he says, I'm broke, and now I got a ticket, and I don't know what to do. I better hide it from my dad. I got to hide it from him. Because if he finds out, what's he going to do? How am I going to pay this? What do I have to sell to pay this? What do I have to do to get the money? I can't afford this. Maybe, maybe, maybe I shouldn't even go home tonight. What would you say about that young man? You might say he doesn't know his father. He doesn't recognize the compassion and power of his dad. You see, Keller says, don't insult God by assuming you deserve anything from him. You don't, but also don't insult him by assuming that he won't give you everything that you need. Instead, go to him humbly, confessing, persisting in your pleas for help and rescue. I wonder if our ancestors, you know, the Christians who went before us, they, they really had a handle on this much better than, than we do. Because it's all over the old prayers of the church, the old hymns of the church. I'll show you this old prayer. 16th century, if that's, that's not old. From the Book of Common Prayer. It's a prayer of humble access and be prayed in advance of, of coming to the Lord's table. 
Christians throughout the centuries have prayed, we do not presume to come to this table, your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but you are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy, who is characterized always by mercy. You see, the, the writer of this prayer was inspired by the words of that woman. And so in a sense of unworthiness, we still come to the table pleading because the one with whom we plead is merciful. Not trusting in our own righteousness, but on his great mercies. Think about that as you come to the table today. As you come empty-handed on the basis of what he has done. His body bruised, his blood spilled. This, this idea, it's all over the old hymns of the church. We, we, we sang a few hymns today. We usually don't sing that many hymns but today, but today we sang quite a few of them, old hymns. And one of them was Rock of Ages. There's a line in there that says, nothing in my hands I bring, <laughs> simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. I got nothing and you owe me nothing, but I'm coming because of who you are and what you've done. I'll give you one more hymn, just because it's a favorite of mine. Come boldly to the throne of grace, you wretched sinners come. How do you feel about that? Are you like, hey, wait a second. Who are you calling wretched, Rob? What? what? Who are you to call me a wretched? If, if, if you are too offended by the words, then you, if you are too offended, when you hear the Lord call you a wretched sinner, then you will miss out on the blessing of hearing him call you son and daughter. Receive it. It's true. You wretched sinners come and lay your load at Jesus' feet and plead what he has done. What he has done. Are, are, are you too proud to, to, to accept that what Jesus has said about you is true? Or, or are you too scared to plead based on what he has done? We can come even more confidently than this woman did with that right kind of confidence, that humble confidence because of what he has done. And so I'll end with just a question. What's, what's keeping you away? Is anything keeping you away from approaching God? You know, we can keep coming to him. We have to keep coming to him, asking for whatever we desperately long for. Whatever it is that you feel like you really, really need right now in your life, that you long for, I would encourage you to follow the example of this woman and keep coming before Jesus and ask and ask and ask. Even if he says no, or even if it feels like he's not saying anything, or even if it feels like he's saying, not now, it's not time, it's not time. I encourage you to keep asking for the salvation of your family, for the rescue of your marriage, for healing, for transformation. Whatever it is, don't be afraid to keep asking. Keep asking, not on the basis of your worthiness, but on the basis of his willingness. He could say no. That's his prerogative. 
he could have said no to this Syrophoenician woman, and he would not have done anything wrong by saying no. But you can ask, and you can keep asking. You know, Jesus never condemns or criticizes anyone for persistence. He rejects proud presumption, but not persistence. In fact, he tells us to keep coming and knocking. Let's do that even now. Let's pray. Our Father, we're approaching you now. And we've, we've staked everything on who you are and what you have done for us in Jesus, your Son. And so it's upon a life that we have not lived and upon a death we did not die. It's on another's life, another's death that we stake our whole eternity. And it's not on the tears which we have shed, not on the sorrows we have known. It's on another's tears, another's griefs. On these we rest, on these alone. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.